All right, good morning. Hope everyone's well today. Um, it's good to see everybody, and uh, hope you're enjoying everything as the uh, summer winds down. I know that's uh, not always a pleasant thought, but it is an inevitable one, and uh, it's, it's good because the transition of seasons is also great for um, just what God wants to do, right? Um, God transitions seasons in our lives, and it oftentimes brings in new things that he's trying to accomplish in our lives. And so um, with that in mind, I uh, just wanted to uh, say that we are... Um, excited with the kids, and uh, if you <laughs> if you want to shout with them, go ahead, feel free. So, it is it is going to be a um, good year, guys. What we've been doing is we've been going through uh, a series uh, where we've been talking about the names of God, and the names of God are important because they reveal uh, not only His qualities. Um, but also his character, um, differentiating the two because his qualities uh, speak specifically um, about who he is um, and his nature, his character, um, about the unchanging part of that, um, those qualities that in the midst of life's circumstances and um, events that we can come to him in his character and approach him as he is consistently. And so we've been going through that as a series, and in that series, um, we've been talking through the Old Testament about names that are a little bit hidden if you um, have never opened up the a Hebrew Bible before and have never uh, tried to translate that which the original language was written in. Um, but we're tempting to do that today because it's important to understand how God relates to his people through his names. And so um, if you've been with us over the past several weeks, we um, started by going through um, a couple of the names of God that you might be familiar with, um, including Elohim and Adonai and uh, Yahweh, uh, El Shaddai and uh, Jehovah Jireh and Jehovah Nisi and Jehovah yeah, a whole lot of them. So <laughs> there, are whole, there are a whole lot of names of God. And we're going to continue that today because uh, as we've been talking about, uh, God is progressive in his revelation of himself. And he reveals himself um, even sequentially, you might say, sequentially, because each revelation builds on top of itself. Uh, when you get one aspect of his character and who he is, then you build on top of that and you understand another aspect of who he is. And today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about two more of those names. Um, we're going to talk about ones that uh, might be one familiar to you and one not so familiar. The one that's uh, not so familiar is uh, possibly Jehovah M. Kadesh. And the second one uh, is uh, Jehovah Shalom. Jehovah Shalom. How many people have heard those names before? Jehovah M. Kadesh and Jehovah Shalom. Okay, that's what we figured, and that's why we're going to talk about it, okay? So let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Father, thank you for your word to us today. God, thank you um, that, God, you show yourself to us consistently and faithfully that you show yourself to be strong, you show yourself to be mighty, you show yourself to be good. And God, we're asking that as you continue to reveal yourself through your word today, um, God, that you would give us understanding and um, great joy as we relate to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, I will say that Jehovah Shalom is the, the one that I look to, um, I personally am focusing on a little bit more um, in this period of time. Uh, this is a particular period, um, just sharing, of uh, mourning, you know, for me personally. Um, 
just not not just because of the normal challenges, but um, I actually have a grandmother who was a woman of God herself, helped pray me, I believe, into the kingdom, and she's on her way out um, uh, to meet Mr. Jesus. And so um, that's good news for her um, because obviously it's going to a better place, right? Um, but it's also mourning for those who are remaining behind and waiting for uh, Jesus coming. And so um, Jehovah Shalom, which means the Lord our, um, is our peace, is very comforting uh, for me during this time, and I hope it is for you as we get into it. Um, but I want to also start with uh, Jehovah M. Kadesh. If you have a Bible today, open to Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 20, verses 7 and 8. Leviticus chapter 20, verses 7 and 8. God speaking to his people um, after coming out, of <clears throat> coming out of Egypt, going through the wilderness, and going into uh, the precipice of the promised land. He spoke to his people and he said, hey, listen, this is how you're going to relate to me. Consecrate yourselves, therefore. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. For I, the Lord your God, am holy. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Whenever we think about um, the fact that God is our healer and God is our banner, as we talked about uh, last week, he eventually brings us to a place where for all of the good news of, that he has for us in the gospel of helping us understand that he's also Jehovah M. Kadesh, which is a translation of the God who sanctifies you. If you were to look into uh, the Hebrew scripture, this would be a sort of a transliteration of that Hebrew word. And the God who sanctifies you is important because God is ultimately revealing to, about himself, his nature and his name in a way that will be repeated throughout the history of God's interaction with humanity. There is no relating to God without understanding his holiness. There is no relating to God without understanding that he is set apart in his nature and understanding that when he says, I am the Lord, Yahweh, or Jehovah, who sanctifies you, what that means in our lives. M. Kadesh literally means to sanctify, to set apart, or to make holy. It was used of times, places, and even articles utilized in worship. Um, when you see that it was used of times, it was talking about things like the Sabbath day. Remember God in his commands, he said, honor the um, Sabbath day and make it holy, right? Part of why we come together and we worship week after week is because we're honoring God's Sabbath, the day of rest, as holy. It's set apart, one that's consecrated to him. And consecrate also means to set itself apart. Um, the places in um, ancient Israel were also <clears throat> important as holy. Uh, Israel, the modern-day Israel, the promised land was holy in and of itself. Jerusalem, the capital where the temple was for worship, that was holy. And even the temple itself was ascribed the designation as holy. It was applied to articles for worship, like I said, but also to persons, meaning that whenever um, God said that his people are holy, he would set apart priests to lift, um, lead the people in worship, and they were described as holy. The kings, as they were 
were anointed of God by the prophets and by the Holy Spirit, they were counted as holy. And we know that even in the New Testament, Peter describes the people of God as a holy nation and a royal priesthood, that anyone who belongs to Jesus is now part of that holiness being set apart to him in all the things that he says. But most importantly, we want to understand that in the Trinity itself, God describes not only the Father, but the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who's the person who both is the um, person and agent of God's sanctifying work in our lives. And whenever we think about holiness, holiness can be one of those sort of nebulous concepts. Um, But everything that God talks about in holiness is in relationship to uh, their significance based on their contact with him. So nothing is holy in and of itself just because it's used for set-apart purposes, but it's holy or it's set-apart and sanctified because of its relationship to God. And so you become holy in your life and different from the world around you based on the relationship and the um, interaction that you have with God. Many of you might have grown up in a church setting where people put in, um, in front of you different rules, regulations, and traditions that you felt compelled to ascribe to and thought that if I do these things, I will in fact be holy. But without actually connection or relating to God himself, there is no holiness because it's actually being set apart to him through that relationship that makes us holy as the Holy Spirit works in our lives to set us apart and give us contact with him. I think there was um, an old Scottish minister who actually described uh, holiness in this way. Whenever you're thinking about holiness, and as like Israelites were trying to consider and understand holiness in their context, they were surrounded by all types of pagan rituals and pagan gods, false gods, deities at the time, just like we are today. And um, this is what the minister said. He said, holiness, it's a balance of all the attributes of the deity. Power without holiness would degenerate into cruelty. Omniscience without holiness would become craft, meaning um, a skill used in deceiving others. Justice without holiness would degenerate into revenge. And goodness without holiness would be passionate and intemperate fondness doing mischief rather than accomplishing good. And so when we think about the holiness of God and all of these things coming together, it's it, we see that it was God's fullness, his holiness and perfection, as opposed to the deities of the day that most times were um, copying or placating the desires and the sinful desires often that found themselves resident in mankind. And when God said that I'm going to make you holy, I'm God the M. Kadesh who's going to sanctify you, part of what he did is he said, I'm giving you my commands as you're in right relationship with me to sanctify you. And God's statutes were his holy commands, which he created to be the fabric of Israel's social, relational, and civic lives. Meaning that everything about them, everything, every interaction that they had, both personally, familially, relationally, it was meant to be holy and set apart by his commands. And it's no different today. 
It's no different today whenever we come to and relate to God because of the fact that we've got to have his commands making us holy today. First Peter, whenever Peter, the apostle who walked with Jesus, was describing life in God, he described it this way. He said, therefore, verse 13, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. So once again, making the connection um, between the um, the sacraments of God, the commands of God, his statutes, and also obedience that we might actually walk out, work out our salvation with fear and trembling, the the, um, holiness that he's imputed to us. He says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So ultimately he's saying, I'm calling you to my family. I'm calling you to be a part of my kingdom business. And here as a royal priesthood, as those who are set apart in terms of God's nature and his character being represented to the cities, the communities, the um, institutions that you're a part of in the earth today. He said, ultimately, you're going to be my standard of holiness in the city, in the um, communities in which you find yourself as you obey my commands. And if you call on him as a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, meaning our time of walking the earth in holiness, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so... Whenever you think about the holiness of God, you've got to think about it not just merely in the nature of our relationship to him, but what comes out of our relationship with him. And that is God and Kadesh who sanctifies us, sets us apart to his purposes. Um, I want to thank Katie, Katie, who actually sent me a um, great quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer this past week, who actually um, sort of encapsulates the idea of holiness for us as we're living in our daily pursuits. Dietrich Bonhoeffer actually said this. He said, being a Christian is less about cautiously avoiding sin than about, than about courageously and actively pursuing God's will. It's less about just avoiding sin than it is about pursuing God's will because you only have time, energy, and space in your life for certain things, right? You can only give yourself to certain things and part of the holiness of God is filling yourself up with his purposes rather than what's mundane. His purposes than the empty ways of life handed down to us by our forefathers, which ultimately, like we talked about last week, can be those waters which are bitter and disappoint rather than that which satisfies us in God who created us. And so ultimately, when we see an idea of holiness, how should I posture myself? I should posture myself if I want to live a holy life in the pursuit of God's will. I should posture myself in such a way where I'm growing not only in the knowledge of God, but actually in the purposes of God in and through my life. And that, in in essence, is how we meet with Jehovah and Kadesh. And it is absolutely the prerequisite of God's revelation of M. Kadesh <coughs> and our holiness that brings us to God as Jehovah Shalom. Jehovah Shalom. Jehovah Shalom.
I don't know how many times I, I can say this, but one leads to the other. One is the source or the root of the other. Especially nowadays, Christians do their best to toe the line. They do their best to enjoy all of the pleasures of the world, not going over the line sinning and still hoping to enjoy the peace that God has for them. And oftentimes, there's a torment in our souls because we're doing things, whether it be secretly or in the private place, or we're doing things, uh, even in public, that we, we want to cling to the idea of what I've called before the hyper-grace movement, where we say, well, God... <laughs> God doesn't really care how I live because ultimately it's about what Jesus did for me. And in that heart posture and position, what's happening is we're forsaking the M. Kadesh. We're forsaking the God who sanctifies us and sets us apart for holy purposes in the hopes that we can have our cake and eat it too. But the truth of the matter is, is that the peace that's represented in this shalom that people are actually looking for is when you posture yourselves internally, not externally, but internally, and allow the Holy Spirit to sanctify you, bringing you into the peace that he actually has for you. Whenever God revealed himself as God Almighty, he said, I'm strong and I'm mighty. I'm ruler over all the earth as El Shaddai. But I'm telling you, this is all leading you to the peace, the peace that you so desperately desire and need in your work life, in your family life, in your relationships with people day by day. It doesn't matter how busy or not busy you think you are. Ultimately, at the end of the day, what you're looking for, what your coworkers and family members are looking for is a sense of peace, of tranquility, of shalom that's going to put you in the right order in your mind, in your heart, in your relationships with God and other people. But God says that the prerequisite to that is allowing me to be Jehovah M. Kadesh to you. And as you're holy, I'll also reveal myself to you as Jehovah Shalom. When we talk about Shalom, you might have heard of it before, but it, it's one of the most important terms in the Old Testament. And it carries with it the meaning of wholeness and that which is full. I don't know how many people I talk to in the city over and over again, and really, no matter their accomplishments, there's oftentimes, even if you talk to them just for a little bit, what pops out is a brokenness inside, a brokenness of soul, a brokenness of relationships, a brokenness of heart. And what they're longing for, though they don't know how to express it um, accurately, is a wholeness. They want to be made complete, but they're attempting to do it outside of God. 
The word shalom not only meant what was whole and full, but in the physical and material sense, it meant one's welfare. It meant to make good, to pay for, repay, or make restitution for something. And again, this is a lot of stuff, but the notes will be on the, um, on the uh, website if you want to go back and like, actually think about some of those things. The word is most often and appropriately translated peace, implying the harmony of relationship or reconciliation based on the completion of a transaction, meaning that you have peace with somebody and after they owe you something when they pay you back, right? It's sort of like if you make a loan to somebody, Lord knows if the bank makes a loan to you, they're going to be at peace with you when you actually pay your bills, And this word shalom actually has that implication, the satisfying of a debt so that there could be once again harmony between that which was owed and that which was paid for. It meant reconciliation based on the completion of that transaction and all of its meanings point to the doctrine of Christ's atonement on the basis of our peace with God. Now, where did we see God first talk about himself as Jehovah Shalom, the God who would bring peace? It wasn't actually in the time of the Exodus where God was leading the Israelites out of their bondage. It wasn't um, actually during the warfare period where uh, God was through Joshua's leadership leading them into the promised land, but it was actually after that time. It was in the book of Judges. It was in the book of Judges where God began to reveal himself as Jehovah Shalom, and Lord knows they needed it because that was an unsettled time. That was an unsettled time. It was a time when after the uh, Joshua and his leadership had gone the way of all the earth and passed on to be with God, what we saw is that there arose a generation, the Bible says in Judges chapter 2, that knew neither God nor what he had done for Israel. Sort of like if you grew up in a Christian household and you have parents who like loved God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you can't afford to try to live on their relationship with him, you've got to know God for yourself. We say that all the time, right? It's like we've got to know God and what he's done for Israel that when I even proclaim him, I, might, I can't help but speaking about what I've seen and I've heard of him. But there was a generation in the book of Judges that rose up who didn't know him. And in the midst of not knowing him, the Bible says there was a lack of leadership and the people began to do what was right in their own eyes. And instead of actually relating to God as holy and obeying his statutes, what began to happen was that the people began to make up their own types of spirituality. And so in the midst of them making up their own type of spirituality, separate from the commands of God, what began to happen is that they were in disarray. And God himself was angered because they started to do what was evil in his eyes, not in their own, but in his eyes. And that, that's important in our generation, right? Because there are plenty of things that even Christians today will dismiss as it's not that bad in my eyes. It's not that bad to me. But what matters if, if you're serving God is not what's right or wrong to you. It's what's right or wrong to him, the God that we're trying to please. And M. Kadesh says, I'm sanctifying you to that which is right in my eyes that which will actually lead you to that wholeness and peace. The Israelites during the time of Judges had moved away from that, started to do what was right in their own eyes, and then therefore it says in um, Judges chapter 2, they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. 
And what you saw as a cycle in the book of Judges over and over again was that God would turn them over in his anger to the surrounding nations. And though the Israelites were meant to be on top, they were meant to, though one of the smallest of the nations, they were to be mighty. And they were to even expel those nations who previously inhabited the physical land and take possession of it and actually be a people who were in holiness an example to the nations that surrounded them. That the people who surrounded them might turn back to the worship of the one true God. And whenever they forsook this responsibility, God would raise up the nations around them, and for a period of time, they would plunder them. And they would strip from the Israelites the peace, the prosperity, and also the wholeness that he had previously promised them. It was a question sometimes when you, have you ever looked at the church as a whole, the universal church, and wondered why they seem like they're on the defensive rather than the offensive? It seems like in the world in which we live, it seems that the world is advancing and the world of the church is taking, at times, steps backwards, ineffectual, or even at times irrelevant to the world around them. It's only when we forsake our responsibility in holiness that God will turn us over to the things that we should have otherwise been plundering. And this was what was happening in the time of Judges. They were planting and they were sowing in the fields that God said would be bountiful and fruitful. You remember the promises that God made to the Israelites when he said, I'm taking you out of Egypt. He said, I'm going to bring you into a land of milk and honey, flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be good. And you're going to be glad you left Egypt. You're going to be glad you left those sinful things. And it's going to be better where I'm taking you. But in the book of Judges, we see them dealing over and over again with plunder. And the question is, why? The question is, why? And the answer is, because they forsook their responsibility to be holy. And so you see these cycles over and over again of the Israelites actually crying out to God in the midst of their oppression. And God would raise up a deliverer, a judge. That's what the judges were who would come and they would rescue the Israelites by the Spirit of God, and for a time the Israelites would return to his commands. And they'd serve him for a period of time, oftentimes like our habit is, until they forgot why they in fact had things going well for them. And then they would return back to their lack of holiness. And God would turn them over again. And what we see, this idea of Jehovah Shalom, it's in a time of disarray in the time of a man named Gideon. And Gideon was not only from the least of the tribes of Israel, but he was trying to live his life, just trying to survive by hiding. He was actually hiding amidst the fields, and he was trying to do his business in a cave. He was saying, like, listen, I'm trying to harvest my wheat in a wine press. A little out of place, right? And God had to come and appear to him, and he had to say, hey, listen, Gideon, I've raised up these several judges that were before you, but now I'm coming to you. It's your turn. It's your turn, but I'm going to come to you and I'm going to raise you up as a judge to deliver the Israelites from a people called the Midianites, but I'm going to do it in the strength, not of your own, but in the strength that I give you because I reveal myself to you as Jehovah Shalom, God, your peace. 
previously God would send the Israelites prophets who said, return to the word of God. But then in Gideon's case, all of a sudden, God shows up in that hiding place, that wine press, by the angel of the Lord. And you can imagine this, if God himself showed up in his physical presence, you know what I mean, that he's scared? Oftentimes, whenever the Israelites were even encountering angels, what did they do? They trembled in fear, right? God is no sissy. No, I'm serious. God is awesome, God is mighty and powerful, and we tremble at his word whenever we see him as he is. And he shows up, and then all of a sudden Gideon's like, listen, I I don't know who you are, but I need to make this sacrifice to you. Let's look in Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter (coughs) 6, starting in verse 1. It said, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of the Midian seven years. Seven years, seven years of having the promises of God in front of you and hearing about them, but not experiencing them and experiencing oppression instead. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land. Let's skip down. But then God says, comes and shows himself to Gideon, said, the Lord is with you. O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you. That's the difference. I will be with you. Before, when you lacked holiness... Here's the point. This, let me help, like this misnomer. A lot of times, you know how people quote the, their favorite scriptures all the time? The Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. How many people have heard that before? Okay, good, good scripture. Let me share another one with you. Second Chronicles 15.2. That's one you might not have in your Rolodex. Second Chronicles 15.2. He said, the Lord is with you when you're with him. different perspective, right? The Lord is with you when you're with him. And if you forsake him, he'll forsake you. That's in the Bible too. And so Gideon is experiencing this at this time. Why have we been experiencing this? Well, you weren't with me, God's saying. You weren't with me. Don't expect anything different when you're not with me. But I'm with you when you're with me, right? Even though, even what Jesus said, even in the New Testament, he said, whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there also my servant will be. Where I am. That means he's in charge. He's the one leading, not the other way around. We need to stop just asking God to bless whatever we want to put our hands to, and instead say, God, what do you want to do? Where are you? And I want to show up where you are. 
When I came out of the world, I had to stop showing up at the places where I knew God wouldn't be. If you came out of the party scene like me, I couldn't be in the same bump, bump, bumps as I used to be because I knew that God wasn't there in that moment. Not that he wasn't making an appeal to people in those places, but I knew that he wasn't being honored. He wasn't being honored in that place. So the the issue is, stop opening yourself up, stop exposing yourself, stop giving yourself over to the things where God's not going to be. And if you stop giving yourself to the things where God's not going to be, then you can expect that the Holy Spirit, M. Kadesh, will sanctify you, set you apart, and give you the power of the promises that he originally made to you. He said, go in the strength that you have. I'm coming back to you, and I'm going to make you holy. But then when he saw him as he was, then he said, I need to offer a sacrifice. Why? Because I can't stand by for a holy God on my own. Matter of fact, I hear his commands, and I can't accomplish them on my own. If you've ever felt that way before, you're in good company. You are in good company. And God says, hey, listen, make an altar, build a fire. And God actually burns up the sacrifice that Gideon puts on the altar and says, God, I'm just trying to do something. I'm just trying to do something to actually show my allegiance with you. I want to honor you in this place. I want to do something, right? And that's what some of you need to start doing, like Gideon. You might not know everything, but you need to make a sacrifice. You need to do something that's going to honor him, show him honor in the place where you are. Make a move towards God. Make a move towards him and stop sitting in the place where you are talking about, I don't know what to do. Gideon didn't know what to do except just get a sacrifice. And God said, I got that. I'm going to come down and fire and bless it. I'm going to show I make, I'm improving of what you're offering to me. And Gideon overwhelmed knowing that what even was that? That wasn't enough. Gideon perceived that he was, meaning the person who came and visited him, the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the um, the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, peace to you. That's so so good. In the midst of our efforts, over and over again, God is saying peace to you. Make an effort, make a move towards me by faith, and I want to speak peace over you. You see, all throughout the Old um, New Testament, over and over again, the apostles starting with the letters, grace and peace. Grace and peace to you. God wants peace to be overwhelm your soul through the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I'll take that, those fish and those loaves, and I'll multiply them and do something with it, Right? The Lord said, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. (laughs) Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is our peace. The Lord is peace. The Lord is Jehovah Shalom. To this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiezrites. The point is this, the Israelites had lost their way as the people of God set apart for his purposes in the land. I'm I'm asking you to listen to this this part. I often just talk extemporaneously, but I want you to listen, please, to this. I wrote this down. (laughs) 
the Israelites had lost their way as the people of God set apart for his purposes in the land. They were swept away by the gross idolatries and materialism of the nations that surrounded them because they found it enough to merely live, inhabit the land, and multiply rather than be set apart as holy. It was enough for them to just prosper and go about their business. They did not realize that their unity as a people and right to the land was fully intertwined with Jehovah and Kadesh and his service. People think they have a right to his blessings without living a holy life. That's the point. The covenant was based on if you obey, then promises from God. It was their mission to be examples set apart from the corruption and abominations of the land to help turn the people of the land back to the worship of the one true God. By failing to do so, they no longer had a right to the land and lost their purity, peace, prosperity, and freedom. The word shalom used by Gideon translated peace was translated some 170 times in the Old Testament. It expressed the greatest measure of contentment and satisfaction in life the deepest desire and need of the human heart. As in the time of Judges, this peace is only found in repentance, a return to being set apart to God. Gideon understood that in the presence of Jehovah and Kadesh, the only way to fulfill his holy requirements was through the Lord who becomes our peace. The Lord Jesus is the one who provides peace with the Father and in our lives. when you relate to him as such. Tranquility, peace in your soul. Not just living just to live and gaining just to gain, but I'm set apart to him as M. Kadesh and therefore the peace, the shalom I was actually looking for, I know. This is why in Isaiah 9, whenever you hear the famous Christmas scripture, you hear him talk about the Midianites and as in the days of Midian, the deliverance that he brought about how would it come in our time? He said, for to us a child is born and a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, right? How do we know how to enter into it into our time? He says, the government shall be on his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. This is just a good apologetic as well. But... His name, this child who is to be born, shall be called Wonderful Counselor. And we know in the New Testament that's spoken of the paraclete, the, okay, Holy Spirit, that's fine, <laughs> okay. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. This child who would be born would be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to hold it with justice and righteousness from that time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord God Almighty will accomplish it. He said, I want you to come into my peace. Whenever Jesus was announced, he said, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. Peace, that's shalom, peace on earth. 
to those on whom his favor rests. Talking about John the Baptist, Zechariah talking about his son prophesied, and he said, and you child will be called the prophet of the most high, for you will be, um, go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. That's where it starts. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high and give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, death to guide our feet into the way of peace in our minds, in our bodies, wholeness, shalom, in our souls. And this is why even in a time like I shared with you about my uh, grandmother, it's, it's, it's kind of rough right now, not for me because I'm here, I feel it from a distance, but specifically for my parents who are trying to take care of my grandma on her way out. Anybody ever have that experience before? Yeah. And I feel for them. But I think about the uh, serenity prayer. Anybody ever heard the serenity prayer before? A lot of times when you're in moments of recovery and trying to overcome certain addictions, this is a prayer that's shared. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can. And wisdom to know the difference. Right? How are you able to even sit in that place? So often when people are dealing with difficulties in life, even from Christians, they're offered empty platitudes. Saying, oh, this is all right. They'll, they'll go into a better place. It's like, well, maybe and maybe not. Yes, if they've put their trust in Jehovah, M. Kadesh, the one who made them holy, Jehovah Shalom, the Lord Jesus Christ, who in fact is our peace with God, But if not, then no, they're not. Isn't that hard and, but also true to say? This is why it matters. This is why it matters because Jesus himself, last scripture and we're done, is our peace. The requirements for peace with God were ultimately satisfied through the cross of Jesus Christ, his sinless sacrifice and resurrection from the dead. He will ultimately return one day to bring God's peace, his shalom, to his creation and all who've been waiting for him. Why do we know that? Romans 5, Paul was talking to the newly birthed church and he said, therefore, verse 1, since we have been justified by faith alone, we have, once again, peace. See that word over and over again, peace, tranquility, wholeness in your soul. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our... Now, this was always a little bit paradoxical to me, and I hope it, I assume that it was to you too, Right? We also rejoice in our sufferings. That ever seems strange to anybody? We rejoice in our sufferings? What? How? Through Jehovah Shalom. That even in the midst of sufferings, there's peace. There's wholeness, and it's not just a wholeness that we experience in the moment, but it's a wholeness that we're looking forward to. 
the ultimate return of Christ and him bringing back into order, right order, all things in his creation. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, approvedness, and character produces hope. And hope in this gospel does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out, I'm sorry, poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. And so whether good times or bad, he said he's Jehovah Shalom. He is your peace that passes, surpasses all understanding. Isn't that good news? That I don't have to get it all. I don't have to, if, it, if anybody else is a fixer in here, anybody like being a fixer? There's an issue, I want to fix it. But he says the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds as you rest in Jehovah Shalom, your peace. Amen? Amen. All right. Let's worship him.